So, um, with that, a little bit of fear of missing out, but that's okay, we're going to proceed. Uh, uh, turn in your Bible, let's get right into it here. Turn your Bible to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We're spending a lot of time in the scriptures this summer. This is what we do, this is what Brad does, I found out. I've been here less than a year, it's my first summer here at Copper Hills, but pick a, a, a book of the Bible and we spend the summer with this Bible study vibe, which is really great. So it's not the sunny Mediterranean, but it is an incredibly interesting book of the Bible. Okay, and why is it so interesting to us? I mean, the whole Bible's interesting, but this, of all Paul's letters to churches, uh, which are part of the New Testament, uh, this is Paul's first letter to a church. So I, mean, I think we think it's one of the first writings of uh, this, all these um, epistles, okay? About 60% of the letter is gratitude. That'll preach. Something like that, opening with all sorts of gratitude. Why is Paul so excited and so thankful? Here's the reason. He's been preaching the gospel and, uh, and then starting up these little learning communities of disciples that we now, we would call that a church now, where they are trying to live it out, out there in the world and inviting people into that life. Uh, but it's really touch and go whether these communities are going to survive or not. These little tiny churches in these cities. Um, uh, because these new communities, these churches are being attacked and persecuted by people who have deep commitments to the old way and don't like what's happening. And then we saw how the people of God, right from the Old Testament through into the New Testament, have not been that great about dealing with change. And uh, we had a big talk about change and, and came to this point of how rather than fearing change and entrenching and attacking, we can actually assess and respond and adapt to change and even innovate in order to complete our mission, like the special forces. I said I used the example of how the military had to adapt to change uh, 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 and complete their mission. By the way, uh, if you didn't catch the huge gospel conne- uh, connection last week on how uh, blood pays for freedom coming off Memorial Day last week, Thursday of this week was the 75th anniversary of the D-Day landings in Normandy. Can you even imagine uh, that day? There's movies you can watch, those five be- beaches, the British landing on Gold Beach and Sword Beach, the Canadians uh, taking Juneau Beach, and of course the American troops storming Omaha Beach and Utah Beach. And I just see Cindy Montana, one of our elders sitting in the front row here. Is that true? Your dad was in the 101st Airborne, dropped behind enemy lines on Utah Beach. That's a famous unit. That's, uh, if you guys have read Stephen Ambrose's book, Band of Brothers, or seen the miniseries Band of Brothers, that's that unit, Easy Company, that that whole story is written about from the landings right to Hitler's Eagle's Nest, is from that unit. What an incredible story. Once again, the price of freedom paid in blood. And I made the argument last week, same for spiritual freedom. Price also paid in blood. Uh, my connection to D-Day was my grandfather, who, speaking of innovation, was in the RAF, the Royal Air Force, got trained on a secret new technology at a black site in Toronto, and then sent to the southern coast of England to deploy the secret new technology. The secret new technology was radar. Um, we laugh, because that's part of our daily vocabulary now, right? Oh, he's on our radar, or something like that. But imagine the impact of being able to know German planes are coming across the English Channel, long before you could see them with binoculars, like a game that changes everything, changed strategies, changed all sorts of stuff. Anyway, uh, we honor those who fought and died, uh, and we honor those who fought and didn't die, but even sacrificed years of the prime of their lives, uh, who maybe came back traumatized or uh, with PTSD, who suffered and sacrificed in all different kinds of ways so that we can enjoy 
the freedoms in life that we have today. I'm so thankful for that, but also there's gospel in that for me because we're meant to be, uh, have that same ethos of sacrifice and service and giving up bits of our life to serve and to help free the world. If you can feel that, a little bit of gospel in there. So that actually lands us precisely here in Thessalonica with some of the very first Christians. They are trying to live for God uh, and in this mission in the world. And they are being persecuted and attacked, ironically, by religious people, by God's own people. They are suffering. So let's see what the scripture says today, starting in 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 1. We're going to go right through to verse 16. I'm going to go verse at a time here. Uh, You yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. Okay, so um, something had gone wrong and there was maybe a temptation to feel like that was uh, a failure. Paul and Silas had previously, while they were ministering in Thessalonica, had to flee in the middle of the churches, in planting these churches. Um, And this could potentially have been viewed as a failure, right? Have you had any failures? Ever had any like ministry failures or were you trying to follow God or do the right thing and that just went all wrong? That's a tricky thing. Man, I sure have. Terrible. Um, You guys know like lost that church. We planted our baby. Felt failed. Felt sure it was my fault somehow. Um, Not a good enough leader. Didn't pray enough. Beat yourself up. Why God? Why? That's the why question. This is going to come up here. Why? Well, don't you want church plants to grow and survive? Why wouldn't you want that to happen? Why aren't you helping me? Why, why, why? Lost it all, felt failed, felt abandoned. Uh, we're going to find out some deep insight into that. If you've maybe had one of those failures in your life where you tried to follow God and it didn't turn out that great for you, you didn't get the benefits you thought from maybe following God. Let's see, uh, let's see where this goes here. Watch Paul and his crew here in verse 2. Um, you know how badly we had been treated at Philippi, just before we came to you, and how much we suffered there. Uh, Yet God gave us courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. Okay, these early Christians are suffering and facing opposition. Uh, It's hard to relate to. I feel like it's so different than what I have experienced in moving uh, to America, and specifically here in Arizona and in Peoria. Uh, Here, I've mostly, I feel like I've experienced reverse persecution or blessing. Let me give an example. I had to to get my uh, home loan for the house. We built a house right over here. Uh, I had to get a house valuation. Like someone has to come in and tell you how much it's worth and do all this stuff, right? And uh, you have to answer all sorts of questions. It's tense because you want this to turn out well. Uh, So um, this woman phones me up. I start asking me all these questions. was kind of rude. Like pushing, pushing me around, uh, cutting me off, wouldn't let me finish answering the questions, wouldn't let me finish my sentences. This, this, nah, nah, nah. Um, but I have no power, I'm just absorbing it all because I really I'm just want this to turn out well. Somehow it comes out. I don't know, I don't know how this came out, but um, I said, I, I didn't know how to answer one of the questions. I said, I don't know, I just moved to America to serve as a pastor. Then it gets uh, quiet for a sec. She had a southern accent. Um, oh, well, that's just fine, Pastor. I'm sure we can get this all sorted out and it'll all be fine. And God bless you for serving the Lord here in America. I was like, did that just happen? Did this, did the temperature just warm up in here a little bit? Um, I went down uh, a couple months ago. I went into the Native Wings over here by Fry's to get some wings for a church-like thing, leadership thing that we were having. 
And the manager recognized me uh, and says, hey, are you a pastor at Copper Hills Church? And I said, yeah, do you, do you come to the church? He said, no, uh, but I saw you preach uh, when I was visiting. And then he gave me a huge discount on the wings. <laughs> I'm like, God bless America. <laughs> it's like good to be, you know, I'm like, Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Like, or we are in Kansas, like right on the buckle of the Bible belt here. It's, it's good to be a Christian in Peoria, or a pastor, or like, like that's a super Christian or something. Um, now, watch how this plays out in Thessalonica, and watch how suffering solves this uh, problem. Now, I got to say this. When things, when there's blessing and favor because you're like a Christian, like something like it's, that results in um, only blessing, there can be a bit of a problem, right? When your Christian faith has mostly all benefits for you, when being a Christian includes you, or gets you ahead? Like, it raises a question, right? If there's lots of benefits. Are you in it for God or are you in it for the benefits? You can see this, is, this comes up here. The motives, the motive question, rears its ugly head. Now watch how this plays out in Thessalonica and how suffering solves it. Verse 3. So you can see from our suffering, we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. Okay, so here it is. The big question, motives. Have you found that people's motives are not always clear? It's true, right? Paul and Cyrus, uh, suffering, the suffering that they go through answers the motives question. These people are wondering, what are these guys about? There's nothing in it for them personally to come to Thessalonica. It's not good for them. Look, verse 4, for we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. He alone examines the motives of our heart. Because motives are not that clear. There it is, motives again. And notice, motives of the heart. Because actions spring from where? The heart. Remember, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus saying, going upstream from our actions and our behaviors to the heart. And one of the ways you can test motives is to see what someone does when there's nothing in it for them. Right? Or introduce some difficulty. And then see what happens. I think it was Dallas Willard who said, pay no attention to what people say. Watch what they do. I see, I, I, see, I found that people say all sorts of things. And uh, make all sorts of promises. Because when there's no custom. Because words can be cheap. Right? Um, I'd take a bullet for the president. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. That's going to be tested, that statement. Be careful when you make bold statements. It's going to be tested under pressure. I remember when we were church planning, pastor, we're with you. Pastor, we've got your back. And then under pressure, so something different happen. Those statements are going to be tested, pressure tested. It's not cynical. It's just wise. You know this already. Let me put it this way. Uh, girls, when that boy professes his undying love for you, he may actually want something. <laughs> Just saying, you won't know until he doesn't get something, and then his motives might be tested. Guys, when somebody promises you the investment deal of a lifetime that's a sure thing with no risk, just consider that they might have other motives in there, okay? It's wise. So, here's what happened. The motive question has been raised. Paul then addresses his potential conflicts of interest. Verse 5. Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know, and God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. Okay, there's the first conflict of interest. You can have money. A lot of suspicion about the church and money. The church, have you noticed this? The church just wants our money. We need fi to figure out ways to alleviate that fear because there's a bit of suspicion 
uh, often between people who are outside the church and how they look at the church. Uh, Copperfield, I found, actually does pretty good. Here's the thing. Uh, here's the first thing you can do. Build stuff for the community, not for yourself. I don't know if you notice this. The coffee shop that we're putting in over here, it's not a church coffee shop. Kevin and the, Austin, the team, done an incredible job. This is a community coffee shop. You see, like, and promoting it that way. Um, the Center for the Arts. It's like, I mean, you can come, and we hope everybody, sign up your kids for guitar lessons. I did. But um, it's not like for us. Because they're watching to see, do you guys just interested in your like, own thing? Or are you, like... What are you going to do with that money, right? So um, money can be the first conflict of interest. Verse 6, as for human praise, we have never sought it from you or anyone else. So there's different things, um, motives that people can have. Some people are trying to make themselves look good or want control or want power. Paul answers any possible accusation of conflict of interest. Verse 7, as apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you. Because he's dealing, because there's suspicion. He's actually going further here than he needs to. Or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Okay. There's something that helps alleviate the suspicion, being together, life together. There's something that helps build relationship, trust, and credibility. That's why we have life groups, right? Sharing the gospel by sharing your life is different than sharing the gospel by giving some information or a tract. You see the difference there? Living life together is the first way we see what someone is about. Now, let me ask you, who do you share life with? Like your, maybe your family, I know, but like, here's one good answer to this, like uh, life group. If you're not in a life group, get in a life group. Do I manage to oversee life groups? You should get in a life group. <laughs> They're really growing. Tim uh, and Nick and that team have really uh, done a terrific job on that. Um, next, back to the money question in verse 9. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so that we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. This is so interesting. Um, if you didn't know about this, the Apostle Paul, the original church planter in the New Testament who wrote a bunch of the Bible and went around starting these churches, um, had a side job making tents for money, Right? Now, you might have heard the term tent making. It just means working on the side to support yourself in the ministry. I do tent making. I build PowerPoint presentations in my spare time. PowerPoint is the new tent, right? But here's an interesting thought. Uh, Don't you think God could have fully funded Paul's ministry? Answer, yes. Why didn't he? Must have been a reason, a good reason. I, I don't... I don't suppose to know the mind of God, but at a minimum, uh, I can see how it's helping. Number one, it's answered the motive question around you're just in it for the money. You know? Um, uh, but I also suspect it actually helped Paul build personal connections out where, he's trying to, out where he's trying to spread the word with everyday people. Remember, he's trying to get a message out, right? He's trying to sow a seed. Now you've got a reason to be out there other than just preaching at uh, the synagogue. I love... I, I, uh, even when I was church planning, I did a little bit of consulting work out in the marketplace. It's kind of fun. Like you can get to know people before they know you're a pastor. You kind of talk to them. I mean, it eventually comes out uh, that you're a pastor and then they stop swearing and act weird. But um, <laughs> before that happens, it's kind of fun. Uh, verse 10, you yourselves are our witnesses and so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless towards all you believers. This is all about motives. Paul is defending his motives. Verse 11, And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives 
in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. Wow. What would it look like to live your life in a way that God would consider worthy? Now, caution about the just try harder thing. Remember, we're not in the just try harder camp. But what would it be like to embrace something God's doing in you and live a life that's worthy? Does that look like safety and comfort? Does that look like bold sacrificial risk-taking? Is that somewhere in the middle there? Um, we All of us have to work that out for ourselves. Verse 13, Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received this message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which, of course, it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. Interesting idea that the word can continue uh, to work in you. It was a great time to ask, are you in the word? Well, here's the first good news. You find yourself in church this morning, except for all these people in here, all the rest of you find yourself in church uh, this morning. We are in the word, right? We're in the word together. I pray this word continues to work in you and in us. Look at this, verse 14. And then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea, who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. For some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God and work against all humanity, as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. By doing this, they continue to pile up their sins but the anger of God is cut up with them with last. So, did you hear all that suffering, suffering, persecution, suffering, persecution, persecution, suffering in there? But letting God deal with the people who are on the attack, right? They're not going on counterattack. They're trusting God. An act of faith, it's incredibly important. So, the big theme I want to pull out of this segment of 1 Thessalonians is suffering and persecution for following Jesus. So we need to talk about suffering and persecution for following Jesus. Of course, it is very difficult to talk about suffering and persecution for following Jesus with any credibility from here in suburban America, where I have found the worldwide center of comfort. Like, it's just amazing to me, like what we have here. Um, I'll just note, uh, Aline and Anka headed off to Romania uh, last week. And man, they're headed into a different thing, you know, like all set up here, but going to like go back into that with their kids. Um, if you have Amazon Prime, uh, you can watch that movie, Tortured for Christ, uh, by Voris Martin. I haven't seen it, but Ken Bruning told me about this. How it happens in Romania. It's kind of the story of how the Christian renewal in Romania, when they had to stand up to the Soviets, wanted to get rid of the church. Like, you know, there's, there can be a bit of homework or do that in your life group or something. Um, Comfort is a pretty high value for us. Would you say? I know this because, for example, I saw this list of um, actual complaints people made to their travel agent. <laughs> From Thomas Cook Travel Agents, I think it was. Have you seen these? I find the level of complaint can help real, um, reveal a person's capacity to suffer and endure suffering. Okay, These are actual complaints people had about their vacations. Here's the first one. The beach was too sandy. We had to clean everything when we returned to our room. Next one. We found the sand was not like the sand in the brochure. Your brochure shows the sand is white, but it was more yellow. 
We booked an excursion to a water park, but no one told us we had to bring our uh, own swimsuits and towels. We assumed it would be included in the price. It's lazy of the local shopkeepers in Puerto Vallarta to close in the afternoons. I often needed to buy things during siesta time. This should be banned. No one told us there'd be fish in the water. The children were scared. Although the brochure said there was a fully equipped kitchen, there was no egg slicer in the drawers. I know. What do you do then? You pack up and go home after that. Um, I compared the size of our one-bedroom suite to our friend's three-bedroom suite, and ours was significantly smaller. Uh, when we were in Spain, okay, this is kind of was funny to me because uh, my wife and my youngest are in Spain on a missions trip. Uh, right now, but I'm pretty sure this didn't come from them. Um, when we were in Spain, there were too many Spanish people there. The receptionist spoke Spanish, the food was Spanish. No one told me there'd be so many foreigners. Okay, this is just special for my friend Terry Roller, who's sitting like right here. Yeah, listen, don't talk, just listen to me right here. This was, this, someone has, the brochure stated, no hairdressers at the resort, like there's no hairdressers available at the resort. No hairdressers at the resort. We are trained hairdressers, and we think they knew, and they made us wait longer for service. <laughs> Thought it was no hairdressers allowed. You didn't send that in, though, Terry, did you? No, no. It's great hairdressing, Terry. Okay, here's my favorite one. Are you ready? This is my favorite one. My fiance, my fiance and I requested twin beds when we booked, but instead we were placed in a room with a king bed. Now we hold you responsible and want to be reimbursed for the fact that I became pregnant. <laughs> this would not have happened if you had put us in the room that we booked. Sorry to tell you, there's another way that that cannot happen. Uh, okay, if you've worked in a service business, you know that people's expectations for comfort can be quite high. But you see the problem with that when we live in the, we, as we live in this in our comfort-based society, right? As we get our lives arranged exactly as we want, even if we get our Christian lives arranged maybe exactly as we want or our church lives, uh, we lose something. A certain muscle can atrophy, the ability to endure, the ability to suffer well. We can become addicted to our comforts. Can't live without them. Get upset when we don't get them. We can go soft, get compromised. The threat of loss of our comforts can be used against us. We end up in a bit of a conflict of interest. Do we love God for who he is or do we love him for all the blessing and comfort he's given us? This is an ancient and long-standing problem with the human race. Um, do you guys know what the oldest book of the Bible is? It's not Genesis. That tells about the very beginning. But do you know what the oldest one, like the recorded one that we think was written first? Do you guys know what that is? Book of Job. You guys know the book of Job? It's a very old, like it's actually written like an epic poem. Uh, the definitive biblical statement on suffering. We cannot talk about suffering without talking about Job. And I can't get all into it, but there's this incredible opening scene that happens in heaven that I just want to take you through real quick because it's going to explain the purpose and why God's letting the Thessalonians go through all that they're going through here. And maybe what you're going through right now, okay? Verse 6, uh, chapter 1 of Job. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Wow. A dialogue between Satan and God. What do you think of that? Where have you come from? The Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I've been patrolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? 
He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity. He fears God and stays away from evil. Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You've made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. All right. You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. What happens next is Satan does all these terrible things to Job, loses his business, his possessions, his health, even like his kids and, and his family. You find out that a bunch of this gets restored. He doesn't know this at the time, but like those kids didn't, that he lost when his house got, like he, they, they didn't get restored. This is kind of a terrifying thing to consider. How would you like it if um, God really thought highly of you and uh, pointed you out to Satan and said, have Adam? Wait, what? That's tough sledding. But there's some important insights into suffering here. And I, uh, full disclosure, owe a bunch of this to Tim Keller. If you get a chance, go on his um, uh, Gospel in Life thing and find his podcast on suffering and really good. Uh, first of all, let's note a couple things here on the suffering. Uh, it's, not say, it's Satan's idea, not God's. Okay, this is important. God does not generate the suffering, the disease, the disaster. Those forces were unleashed when we rebelled from God. So God is not actively or deliberately creating the suffering. But God is in total control of the situation. Maybe you need to hear that this morning with whatever you're faced with. God is in total control of the situation. I don't know if you notice in the scene, this is not like two equal forces of good and evil. What's happening here? This is, this is God is dominating this and Satan. He overrules the evil. He permits it. He limits it. He's making the rules here. It's the good is superior. The evil is about to get played actually. And God only allows Satan to accomplish the opposite of what he's trying to accomplish. You know, Satan's trying to accomplish something in your life. Think about that for a second. Maybe God's letting that happen for your ultimate good, for my ultimate good. Maybe he's doing it so that Satan accomplishes the opposite. Satan's trying to discredit Job, expose Job. But what God does is allows Satan to defeat himself. Just gives him enough rope to hang himself. As you'll see if you read the rest of the story uh, and how Job comes through this, okay? God hates suffering evil, but he permits it to defeat the ultimate intention of Satan in our lives. Here's the thing, though, that I wanted to tell you. Job never finds out why he's suffering in that story. If you read that this week, we know. Because we're watching it and we've got kind of like some narration. But he never finds out. All this stuff happens to him. He never finds out why. He doesn't know why. He does not know that he is going to be the example of steadfast faith and trust and loyalty in the midst of suffering. He will be the biblical example for this for the rest of time. For millions of people. He doesn't know that. Wouldn't it be, isn't it so much easier if you knew Why? You're going through something? Like if you knew, like then you could do it for the thing at the end that you're going to get. But you see the catch here, right? We always want to know why. When something happens, don't you say, why, why, why? That's what I said with our church plan. But we can't know. Job can't know. Do you know why? Because that would defeat the purpose. 
The purpose is to answer Satan's motive accusation. The purpose is for us to freely love God for who he is, not for what he can do for us or what we get out of it. To love the giver, not the gift. And to test that, you have to be in a situation where serving God gives you nothing. You're getting nothing out of it. Maybe nothing but hardship. If you really want to love God for who he is alone, we need to be willing to let God put us through the ringer. We have to remove every conflict of interest in our lives. Let's call those biblical word for that. It would be idolatries. So we can freely love God the way he loves us, just for who we are. So what's the application? Uh, this idea can reconcile any suffering you have in your life. Anything gone wrong? Is there anything that makes you go, why, why, why'd that happen, Lord? Why? Why? For Amy and I, it reconciles the failure of our church plant that was so hard on us. Church didn't survive. Everyone fled, lost my job, my career, our dream. Um, seemed to amount to a whole bunch of hardship and loss. No, it didn't, didn't seem like there's no fruit to enjoy. There's no success story to point to, no legacy, no esteem from my colleagues. Um, felt I gave the best years of my life and that it came to nothing. Now, it might not. In fact, we believe that God doing things that we don't see. Uh, but that's not the point. I can't even know about that. Is it enough? Here's the question. Is it enough to just obey and do that just for him? Even if it doesn't feel like it's a success, even if you don't get to enjoy the fruit of that, even if it looks like it was just hardship. We'll never know why all that tanked, and we can't know. That's the point. Can we love and trust him even when it appears there's nothing in it for us? Suffering accomplishes something important in our lives, in our discipleship. It confronts our, our arterial motives, our conflicts of interest, and helps make us truly free lovers of God. God is making for himself a people who freely love him and others, not for what they can get, just because of who they are. When we suffer, we become like him. The heat gets turned up. Impurities come to the surface. I don't know if you experienced this. I sure have. And there's a purification. So here's the thing. Where's some suffering in your life? I know it's hard to compare when there are Christians in different parts of the world right now being martyred and undergoing incredible suffering and even torture for the gospel, true persecution, but it's okay. We start from where we are in our lives right now, right? Where do you have some suffering in your life? How is that shaping you? What impurities are coming to the surface? How are you dealing with those impurities? How are you being invited to trust God in that suffering? Even though it's not what you want and you don't understand it, you stay in that relationship and you trust him and see where this goes. How is he making you into a truly free lover of God? Well, the truth is there was only one one truly innocent sufferer, only one truly free lover, and that's Jesus. I find our suffering is mostly because of our sin and selfishness. But there's one person who suffered not for sin and not for selfishness, but to serve God out of pure love. There was nothing in it for him. The invitation of his heavenly father was, if you obey me fully, I will turn my back on you and let you die. Kind of, does that help you understand that moment on the cross when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani? Like, wasn't that, when you first read that, didn't that seem like a strange phrase? Jesus separated from the Father fully and asking why, just like we do. 
Why? Why? Doesn't he know? He's omniscient. Well, parts of his fully humanness for him to do his mission have to be shielded. He doesn't know. He can't know. That's the point. Truly abandoned by God. Truly served God for nothing. There was nothing in it for him that he knew. Of course, it's going to change the world. That's the proof of true love. Suffering and no idea why. Satan says there is no love. People just do it and we treat each other to get what we want. There is no authentic love. Jesus died on the cross and proved Satan was a liar. So why did he do it then? His motive? For us. He did it for us. Because he freely loved us. And when we increasingly embrace unexplainable suffering the way he did, we increasingly become like him. So here we are. We find ourselves at this spot now, at the foot of the cross. And there's only one thing we can do, only one way we can respond, and that's with communion. So I'd like to invite the worship team up. And if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I'm going to invite you forward in a minute to receive communion. Today we have the elements at the front and the back uh, of the sanctuary. I'm going to pray, and then together we're going to remember the greatest, most selfless moment of suffering in history. We're going to enter into that suffering. Let it shape us and bring meaning to any and all the suffering in our lives, big or small. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, here we are again, the foot of your cross, astounded at your love for us, astounded at what you accomplished in the world. We thank you, Lord, for your suffering, that you came down from heaven and entered into this and went to your death willingly, paid for our freedom with your blood. You could have stayed in heaven. You could have stayed in your comfort. You didn't have to do this. But you did. Out of love. You proved the devil a liar. You brought great joy to your heavenly father. For all the little sufferings in our life, big and small, whatever we're facing, we bring it to you and we say we trust you. We trust you, Lord. Use that to shape us, make us more like you. Humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.